Uh, yeah, so good morning. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And if you don't have one, you can use one. If you don't own one, take one as our gift to you. There are sermon notes on all of the communion tables around the room. They have the scriptures that we're going to be going through this morning, as well as some notes. And if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Version. You click on more, click on events, and it'll bring up the notes and the announcements and everything that goes along with today's message. We are going to jump right in because I have to warn you up front, we have a long one this morning. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. Please stand up for the reading of God's Word. This is Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, you are a God that is mighty to save, and that you love your people so much, Lord, that you would not allow them to stay in slavery. And we thank you that you are a God who delivers And I pray that you would speak to us this morning about who you are, your glory, your nature, and your grace and your goodness. So we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in week 10 of our summer series called I Believe in Miracles, where we've been taking a closer look at different miracles that are recorded in the scriptures. And if you've been here for a while, as you're probably already aware, the overarching message of the Bible is the story of God's redemption over all his creation. It's the story of God as the Savior of his people. And we see this from the book of Genesis all the way through the, uh, the book of Revelation. And the miracles that are recorded in the Bible are for the primary purpose of accomplishing that redemption, and also to make it clear who God is, His nature and His glory to all people of every generation. And for us today, when we think of God as Savior, we point to the cross and we look to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And as we celebrate communion every single week, we're reminded of what Jesus did on that cross that permanently defines God's Saviorhood for all time. But if you were to ask a Jew in the Old Testament how they know that God is a Savior and a Redeemer, where do you think they would point? Well, they would point back undoubtedly to the Exodus where God delivered his people from Egypt and from slavery that lasted 430 years. In this story, we could see it's detailed in the book of Exodus. And today we're going to be looking at God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, which became their beginning as a nation. God had performed several mighty miracles in the form of plagues to not only deliver Israel from Egypt's grip of slavery, but also to remind Israel of God's character and his promise and to show the Egyptians and every other nation that the God of Israel is the Lord over all of creation. You see, in creation, God brought order out of chaos. And in these plagues, we're going to see that creation is selectively reversed And it it unleashes chaos so that God shows himself as the only true God that controls the universe. So we're going to be reading a lot of scriptures today. I did my best to chop this thing down, but there's only so much we could do there. But first, we need a little bit of a a backstory. And as we get towards the, the end of the plagues, you're going to feel a little weary. You're going to feel tired. And when you do feel that, think about the Egyptians in the story. Think about the Israelites and those who are actually going through that. And so we need a little bit of a backstory here. God makes a promise to a guy named Abraham that his descendants are going to become a great nation. 
And through his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, who later gets renamed to Israel, through whom the 12 tribes of Israel come, the people of Israel end up in Egypt because of Jacob's son, Joseph, who becomes King Pharaoh's right-hand man. And Israel, the people, they're blessed, and they bring blessings to Egypt under Joseph. And they become mighty, and they become strong. And after a few generations, though, a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he feared Israel's growing population. They started at about 72, and they went to over 2 million in about 400 years. Apparently, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, they said, all right, we'll do that. And so... Pharaoh oppresses them as slaves, and and he causes them to serve and build Egypt's kingdom. And then the king commands the killing of every newborn Hebrew boy by drowning them in the Nile River. And that's an important thing to remember as we get into the story. And by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses while she bathes in the river. Well, basically his parents hid him for three months. They hid him in the river, and then... God allows Pharaoh's daughter to find him, and she ends up adopting him and raising Moses as her own son. And Moses grows up in Egypt, and he witnesses the oppression of his people. And one day he kills an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew. And so fearing punishment, he fled Egypt to the land of Midian, where he finds a wife, and he has a son, and he lives as a shepherd. And it's during this time that God appears to Moses in a burning bush, which is a miracle we're not going to be talking about today. And he tells Moses that he's going to send him to Pharaoh so that God can deliver Israel from Egypt. And God introduces himself as the Lord. And Moses says, well, what is your name? So I know what to tell the people. And God says, I am who I am, which is really like saying, Really? They know, they know who I am. They know very well who I am. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse 14 and 15, Tell them the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent you. This is my name forever, and how I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And as we read at the beginning, in Exodus 5-2, Pharaoh asked this question, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And what God is going to do here is he's going to show Pharaoh by a series of these ten miracles, these ten plagues. And by these miracles, he's going to answer that question, not only for Pharaoh, but for Israel and ultimately for every generation to come, including us. And in this ancient story, we find a very modern question. Who is this God that you speak of? You see, Egypt was similar to us in in many ways. Archaeological artifacts, they show that there were shrines and there were temples all over the place in Egypt. Nothing was secular. Every aspect of their culture involved some kind of worship to various deities representing every area of their lives. They had what is called a pluralistic culture like we do today. And they wouldn't have been offended that the Hebrews had this one God because Egypt had somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 deities or gods that they worshipped. Now, did you know that in America, only about 3% of people are atheist? The vast majority are hungry for and they realize that there is something sacred that the secular just can't provide. And it was the same in Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't offended that that the Hebrews had this one God called the Lord or Yahweh, he was offended that their God claimed to have some sort of authority over him. And this is the same thing that we struggle with today. It's not a problem to say that you believe in God unless you're saying that God tells me how to live my life, that your God tells me how to live my life. That's the one thing that offends us and that we can't tolerate. 
Your God tells me how to live. He's infringing upon my freedoms and my desires. And Pharaoh's struggle was this. Who is this God to tell me what to do? For I am also God. You see, the Pharaohs believed that they were also divine. And if we really think about it, in many ways, we believe the same thing. If we can be honest just for a moment, and we are in church, so we should be honest, the truth is that most of us are pretty cool with God as long as he doesn't call us to do something that we find uncomfortable. Instead of glad submission to this God who has revealed himself to us, we're more more apt to trust our own judgment and our own strength and to live by our own authority. And my guess is that there are areas in all of our lives that we know that God is leading us toward obedience and we've dug our heels in. And we ask via justification or via doubt, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God, in his mercy, he's going to step into this space. He's going to answer this question for Pharaoh and also for us. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 29, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. This is a bottom line statement. I am the Lord and I'm about to let it be known. There are no other gods. And so we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 7 in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Remember that phrase, as the Lord had said. Snakes represented Egyptian power. And on King Tut's coffin, you can see that the headdress has a cobra. There should be a, a photo there. And Aaron's staff turning into a snake was a direct challenge to Pharaoh's power here. But Pharaoh, wanting to show his force, he calls the magicians of Egypt. And lo and behold, it appears they're able to turn their staffs into serpents too. Now, as you probably know, we have some pretty amazing magicians in our day, right? But remember, as with the pyramids, the Egyptians were pretty brilliant people. And they could probably do magic tricks like we've never even seen today. Some say that this actually wasn't a trick, but this was some sort of supernatural satanic miracle. But the scripture is clear that Satan is not like God. He can't do real miracles. And the power that he exercised on earth was only done by God's permission and only for a specific purpose. But he is a master deceiver, and so he can counterfeit miracles, but he can't do the real thing. And so to make sure that everyone knows what God thought about Pharaoh's might here, Aaron's staff then swallows up all of the magician's snakes. But Pharaoh here, as we see, doesn't heed God's warning. But God's going to give Pharaoh more chances to obey. And that brings us to the first plague in verse 14 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that is turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. 
So from the earliest history of Egypt to the present day, the very lifeblood, the heartbeat of Egypt is the Nile River and the Nile Basin. It's always been strategic to Egyptian agriculture. And during this time, it was the center of economic power, providing transportation and irrigation and pasture and hunting and fishing and, and all kinds of things. And all their power and all their might and all their wealth were tied to the Nile. And they had several gods over the Nile that they prayed to and that they sacrificed to. And Moses and Aaron, they go and they confront Pharaoh during his morning ritual of going out to the water during his religious devotions to the Nile and to its gods. And here God begins to answer Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? In verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water of the Nile and all the, all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And all the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, Egypt had this god named uh, Canaan, and you can see a picture of him here. He was considered the guardian of the Nile. And they also had another god named Osiris, who was known as the god of the dead and resurrection, and who ruled the other deities. And it was said that the Nile River was his bloodstream. And here the Lord, Yahweh, turned the river into blood as if Osiris was bleeding to death. And the other primary god that controlled the annual flooding of the Nile, which made Egypt's land fertile and made it productive, was the god named Happy. You can see a picture of Happy here. If Happy made the annual flooding go well, then everybody prospered. We sacrifice to Happy. We come to Happy because Happy, and it's not lost on me that that's his name, brings the fulfillment of life and brings everything that we can hope for in this life. But all the fish died and the place stank something fierce. Now you can imagine the horror here as their river, their source of strength and vitality was being destroyed. But God was exposing their idolatry by proving that their false gods were powerless to provide what they had hoped for. And in verse 22 we read, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Verse 24, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So, with the Nile and every pond and every reservoir that it had filled turned to blood, the Egyptians are nearly dying from dehydration. But Pharaoh is not willing to accept God's answer to his question, who is the Lord? Because that would require surrender. And when the magicians of Egypt are able to turn what little water they found into blood, Pharaoh hardens his heart even more. Now, now how stupid is this? Why would, they, why would they actually make more blood? It's just magic tricks that we see here. If they had any real power, they would turn the blood back into water. But rather than believing God's revelation and his power, and having Egypt's thirst quenched, Pharaoh would rather have Egypt dig ditches next to this massive river and sip on any dirty water that they could find. But God is still going to give Pharaoh another chance to obey. In chapter 8, verse 1, the second plague, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold... I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs, and they shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses, uh, the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. 
Verse 6, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. Now, this is the first plague that is involving the animal kingdom. And it's a reversal of God's creation pattern where humanity has dominion over the animals. And it results in complete and total chaos. Now, frogs can be pretty cute, right? They make this ribbit music, basically, that Egypt loved because when the river would overflow and the water would cover the countryside, it would leave these ponds everywhere. And the people would hear those frogs and it would be a sign for them that there was water for their crops. And so it was a good thing. And they had a goddess named Heket. You can see a picture of Heket here who had a frog's head. She symbolized fertility and fruitfulness and resurrection. And again, God's answering the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he is the one who commands and controls all of creation and all created things. And he can make it do as he pleases. And so frogs take over the land. They're in every nook and every cranny. Now, they're cute, right? But not in your shoe or not in your underwear drawer. Or definitely not in your cookie jar, right? But before this chaos was over, people were squashing frogs all over the place, which must have been a real heavy guilt trip because they considered these frogs to be sacred. And so it this wasn't just a scene of frogs popping out of sock drawers or cushy slippers. This was actually a disastrous health threat to sanitation and food preparation. And when these frogs started to die, their rotting bodies produced this stench of death. And in verse 7 we read, But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. Now this is ridiculous, right? The magicians couldn't make the frogs go away, but they made more frogs invade the land. I'm sure they were very popular with the Egyptians at that time. And this is the first time we've seen, uh, we, we see a sign of weakness in Pharaoh, and he realizes that only the Lord can remove the frogs. And in verse 8 it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my, from my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. And to make sure there's no question that the Lord is God over creation, that he's the only God, Moses asked Pharaoh to name the time you want the frogs to go away. And what does he say? Tomorrow. I would have said, right now, get rid of them, right now, don't wait. Verse 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen, as the Lord had said. And yet Pharaoh, I mean, yet God will give Pharaoh one more chance to obey. Third plague in verse 16, chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, can you picture this? Can you imagine this? More chaos turns Egypt's very comfortable life completely upside down. And the first layer of dirt just starts to rise. And it takes off. It starts flying everywhere. Little gnats everywhere. And then more and more rising from the dust, swarming all over every human being and every animal And again, the magicians try to counterfeit this miracle, but this was way beyond them. 
They could throw some snakes and some frogs around and fool somebody. They could take some water and throw it around and, and fool somebody, but they couldn't control gnats. They basically confessed, this is too big for us. This is not a trick. But Pharaoh still doesn't listen, and yet uh, God gives Pharaoh another chance to listen. And that brings us to the fourth plague in verse 20 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Verse 24, and the Lord did so and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And so we've seen so far, God has exercised his power using the water and living, its living creatures and by using the dust of the earth, and now he takes to the air and he sends swarms of flies so bad that we're told that the land of Egypt is ruined by them. And this is the first time that we see a distinction is made between Israel and Egypt regarding who is affected by the plague. God says, No flies will be in the land of Goshen where my people dwell, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And ultimately, Pharaoh will give in again to God's might, but he also tries to negotiate the terms of Israel's release. And after finally agreeing to let them go, the Lord, he removes those flies, and again, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he doesn't listen, and he doesn't let the people go. And guess what? God gives Pharaoh another chance to obey. Chapter 9, verse 1, plague number 5. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe severe." excuse me, severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Verse 6, And the next day the Lord did this thing, and all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Again, a familiar scene here. Let my people go that they may serve me, or else... And this is the first plague that we see that is, causes death by being directed against created things. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel here, as none of Israel's livestock is dead. And there's another, this is another attack on Egypt's gods. In this case, uh, the goddess Hathor, who's pictured here, who is the goddess of love and celebration. She's depicted with a cow's head. Egypt's livestock were basically devastated here. And just to make sure that this was the Lord's doing, Pharaoh checks to confirm that none of Israel's livestock had died. And amazingly, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he didn't let the people go. But guess what? God gives Pharaoh another chance to obey. Plague number six in verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it up in the air in the sight of Pharaoh and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. So, so far, Egypt has seen its river decimated and insects and critters taking over their land and their livestock killed. 
But now their lives are in direct danger as humans bear the brunt of God's judgment. This plague, it doesn't come from the water, or it doesn't come from the dust, or it doesn't come from the air, but it comes from the ash that's in the kilns that were used to bake the bricks that the Israelites had to make as slaves. And Moses, he stands before Pharaoh, and he takes some of that soot, and he throws it up in the air, and festering boils come upon all the magicians that were so bad that the, I mean, all the Egyptians that were so bad that the magicians couldn't stand before Moses. And again, Israel is not affected by this plague. And of course, Egypt, they had gods to prevent disease and to bring healing and to, to provide medicines, but they were powerless in this case. And again, Pharaoh doesn't listen. But this time, we read in verse 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. And as the Lord had, spoke, as the Lord had spoken to Moses, the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Commentators for ages have been trying to resolve this whole hardening of the heart issue that we see here in Exodus. But really, it can't be resolved because Pharaoh is not really given the chance this time, technically. You see, God told Moses far in advance in Exodus 4.21 that he intended to make Pharaoh a tool for his redemptive plan. And it's a reminder of what the Lord had been trying to teach Moses and Israel from the beginning of this Exodus episode, that God is in complete control. He's in complete control. And so to be true to Scripture, we have to let this tension remain as it is. And we're going to see this become clearer as we get to the next plagues. Which brings us to number 7 in chapter 9, verse 14. God speaks and he says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, For by now I could have put my hand and put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as has has never has been in Egypt uh, from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Verse 23. Then the Lord stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. We see here in verses 15 and 16 that God lets Pharaoh in on the secret here. I could have wiped you off the face of the earth by now, but I am using you to spread the word throughout the world that I am God. Pharaoh, you are serving my purpose. Now, hail, it's often associated with God's presence in judgment, and that makes this even more intense and again, Egypt had these false gods. In this case, Nut, pictured here, who was the sky goddess, who was powerless to help them against the Lord. All the current crops and all the vegetation was destroyed. And in verse 27, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. It seems that finally Pharaoh is he's getting the message, and by his confession here and his willingness to let Israel go without conditions, we think the message is getting through. But Moses is realizing now 
how this story is going to play out. He knows that Pharaoh's heart is not truly repentant and that he's not going to obey. But he still asks the Lord to stop the hail as another sign that God controls creation. You see, God demonstrates his might by both bringing the plagues and by taking them away. And in verse 34, we read, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Plague number 8, chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know, that you may know that I am the Lord. God's plan and his purpose here, it's unfolding just as he designed it. And nothing Pharaoh can do or there's nothing anyone else can do to stop it at this point. And this was not just so that the Egyptians would know the Lord, but so that Israel's future generations would know him as well. In verse 13 we read, So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all the day and all the night. And the locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in all the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. Amazing, right? Now, a a locust is capable of eating its own weight every single day. I know some of you claim you can do that, but we know there's no way you could do that. And one square mile of locust contains between 100 and 200 million locusts. And a swarm can be as wide as 400 square miles. And so they came in and they wiped out whatever was left. And all the Egyptian gods of the crops and the land, they were useless. Now, by now, you can probably guess what happens next, right? Pharaoh asks for forgiveness. He pleads for relief. God removes the plague. But Pharaoh still doesn't let the people go. And in verse 20, we're reminded, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's round nine. You starting to feel it? You starting to feel weary? Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So the plagues have gotten more intense and more devastating each time. So what makes this plague so significant? Of all the Egyptian gods, one of the greatest and most revered was Ra, the sun god. You can see a picture of him. And Egyptian kings were often referred to as the son of Ra. So this would have spoken directly to Pharaoh. And the Lord, Yahweh, he has his way with light and darkness and with solar systems. And he sends a clear and a powerful message. The Lord of the universe who said, let there be light, can just as easily say, let it be dark. And yet, even after this, Pharaoh believes that he still has some power to negotiate with God through Moses. But once again, we're told in verse 27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Pharaoh basically says, If you come to me again, I will kill you. 
And little does he know that someone indeed is going to die, but it's not Moses and it's not the Israelites. And that brings us to the tenth and the final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn. The number ten is significant in the Bible because it represents a, a fullness and a completion. And just as the Ten Commandments are symbolic of God's fullness and his moral, his, his moral law, the ten plagues represent the fullness of God's expression of justice and his judgment on Egypt. And unlike all the other plagues, with this one, there's no hope of reversal here. And to ensure that Israel always remembered this crucial act, this crucial miracle of deliverance, God institutes the Passover feast, which would be kept every year to commemorate his deliverance and his redemption of Israel. Now, we don't have time to read it all, but Exodus chapters 11 and 12 describe the feast and this plague in in great detail. But basically, God told Israel that every household shall kill a perfect, unblemished lamb, and they shall take some of its blood and put it on the doorpost and put it on the lintel, basically the doorframe of their houses. And in Exodus 12, chapter 12, verse 12, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord. As you have said, if a Jew ever questioned the saving, delivering power of God, all he had to do was to go back to this moment in time, which was the touchstone of God's redemptive power. And God wanted Israel to never forget it. So he gave them the Passover and said, let this be a memorial that I am a God who is mighty to save. And so they kept this Passover year after year after year after year until One night there came a very special Passover, like no Passover the world has ever seen. This is when Jesus was gathered in an upper room with his disciples to eat it. And it was the night before he would go to the cross. And it was time to remember God's saving power and to remember it in terms of of deliverance from Egypt. But in the middle of this Passover, just as they were ready to look backwards to Egypt as evidence of God's saving power, Jesus transformed the Passover into something brand new. And this is how it went. And if you want, you can open up to Luke 22, verse 19. But the presiding person, he would pronounce a blessing called the Kedush, which was over the first cup of wine. And he would take that cup and drink it. And then he would pass it, and others would drink. And then they would take the unleavened bread, and they would dip that unleavened bread into the bitter herbs. And then came an explanation of the meaning of the Passover. And then they had the, the, the food for the meal, which was the sacrificial lamb. And then they sang what was called the, the Hallel, which comes from parts of Psalms 113 through 118. And then the leader of the Passover would pick up the second cup of wine and would drink and pass. And after that, he picked up the unleavened bread and he blessed God and he ate the unleavened bread. And then he would pick up the third cup of wine. And it's at that moment that something amazing happened. 
Jesus, who was leading this Passover, when he got to the unleavened bread, he said, this is my, what? Body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of, what? Egypt? No, of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he picked up that that third cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus literally transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper, into communion, which we have set up all around the room here today. He himself being the ultimate fulfillment of that Passover. And so for us, as we look back and as we look at these plagues, we have to remember that these were much more than just acts of judgment, but they were also acts of grace so that the whole world would know the Lord. We don't look at these plagues and we don't rejoice in people's destruction, but we rejoice in God's people's salvation You see, when the Israelites, when they left Egypt, there were many who came with them from all nations. The Hebrew calls it an Arav Rab in Exodus 12, 38. And it's it's a mishmash. It's a a mixed multitude of people who wanted to leave Egypt and to to be free from slavery and, and, and be free. And this is good news for you. And it's good news for me. You see, because the plagues pointed forward to Jesus Where the water of the Nile was turned to blood and brought death, Jesus turned water into wine that brought life. And where soot brought boils that disfigured skin and bodies in judgment, Jesus willingly submitted his body and his flesh, and he tasted that for us so that we did not have to be judged. His body was torn up for us. And where Moses stretched out his hand and there was darkness for three days, Jesus stretched out his hands and there was darkness for three hours before then he descends into darkness for three days and he tastes death for all of us. And ultimately, as the Passover lamb was sacrificed to save the firstborn, Jesus, who is the true firstborn son, becomes that perfect Passover lamb for us so that we who trust in his shed blood would not be condemned but would have eternal life. You see, the plagues fell on Jesus so that God's grace falls on you and falls on me. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that through Jesus we get to taste life and we get to taste freedom again. And that's God's invitation to all of us this morning. I want to invite the band to come back up this time. So as we uh, go to communion, like we do every single week, We take that cracker and we break it. We remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And when we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us. You know, and sometimes I think that we look back and we remember these things, but we also have to realize that it's also a symbol and it's also a sign of our union with Christ and what he has done to bring us back, to reconcile us to himself by his spirit. So as we participate and as we celebrate communion together, we remember that we have been joined to him by his spirit. We've been joined to him in his death, just as we've been joined to him in his life and in his resurrection, as we had talked about last week. And so as we participate in communion, we remember that we are part of the family of God and we belong to him and we belong to one another as well. And so as the band plays and we reflect and we spend time worshiping God, reflecting on what he has done for us and the new life that he has given us, we also remember that we worship God through our giving. And so there are offering boxes on the, 
near the exits around the room. And we don't pass a plate. And our giving is it's just another part of our worship where we give back to God a little of what he has given to us. And we also worship God through bringing our, our hearts and our, our desires and our brokenness to him. And there will be people in the back who would love to pray with you if you, you have anything that you would like to pray about. Perhaps God is speaking to you this morning and you realize that you're asking the question. Perhaps you didn't realize it. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And maybe you've been hardening your heart and you want to talk to somebody about that. They'd love to pray with you about that. Or maybe you're, you're in a place where you feel like you're still in slavery and you haven't experienced the freedom that you know God has bought for you with his own precious blood. They would love to pray with you about that as well. So pray with me now. Father, thank you again for the reality, Lord, that you are a God who is mighty to save and that you loved us so much that you're not willing to leave us in our slavery. And you're not willing to uh, leave us in a place of delusion, Lord, where we trust in false gods, things that we think will make us happy and will satisfy us, but it's really just muddy water. It doesn't bring true life. Only you can bring true life. And you love us so much that you're not going to let us worship anything less. And so, Lord, where, where we have been blind, where our hearts have been hard, we pray that you would help us to see and that you would soften us. We thank you that you are in complete control. And there is nothing that can stop you from the great redemptive work that you are doing in each of our lives. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.